Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I'm Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today's episode takes up two separate topics, both of relevance to academic freedom. They are connected in part by temporal proximity, but more importantly, by the fact that my guest today recently published blog posts about both of them. I found the post thought-provoking, and so I invited him on for a conversation to explore the issues that they raised. One relates to the recent controversy surrounding Ilya Shapiro, who recently resigned his position as a lecturer and administrator at Georgetown University Law Center. The AFA had issued a public letter defending his speech rights during that controversy. The second relates to the university responses to the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision overturning Roe v. Wade. I'm pleased to be joined by Eugene Volokh. Eugene is the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of California at Los Angeles um, School of Law. He was a clerk for Judge Alex Kaczynski on the Ninth Circuit and for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the U.S. Supreme Court. He's one of the country's leading experts on free speech and the author of the textbook, The First Amendment and Related Statutes. He is the founder of the group legal blog, The Volokh Conspiracy, and I'm a regular blogger there as well. Eugene, thank you for joining me and welcome to the Academic Freedom uh, Podcast. Um, you want to start by giving us some basic facts about the uh, controversy um, with Ilya Shapiro at Georgetown University uh, Law Center, and then we can start digging into the report the university uh, wound up producing um, in response to that controversy. Sure. Uh, so uh, the controversy arose in the context of uh, the nomination of now Justice Jackson. Uh, President Biden basically announced uh, during the campaign that he would appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, uh, when Justice Jackson was nominated, it was pretty clear that it was uh, in part because she was a black woman. Uh, I think she's very well qualified black woman who had a uh, uh, successful uh, successful uh, legal career and had been uh, had been on the on the federal district court bench. Uh, but um, but the, her race and sex were definitely uh, reasons that were specifically given for this, as of course it happened to other justices in the past with regard to their sex or religion or or, or ethnicity. Uh, it was very strong suspicion, or sometimes even specifically said that they were chosen in part because of their dem demographic factors. Um, so uh, uh, Ilya Shapiro uh, sent out a couple of tweets. Uh, the, uh, which read, and I'm going to read them right now, and I'm, and I'm going to expand a few of the abbreviations. Objectively, best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan, who is solid, progressive, and very smart, even has identity politics benefit of being first Asian, paren Indian, paren American, but alas, doesn't fit into the latest intersectionality hierarchy, so we'll get lesser Black woman. Thank heaven for small favors. And then, because Biden said he's only considering Black women for SCOTUS, his nominee will always have an asterisk attached, fitting that the court takes up affirmative action next term. So this created a, a, a firestorm of outrage because of the phrase lesser Black woman. And people said, oh, he's saying that Black women are lesser. Uh, in context, it seems to me quite clear that is not what he was saying. What he was saying is that she is a Black woman and chosen because she's a black woman. Again, that much is uncontroversial. Uh, and that she is lesser than, than whom? Than Sri Srinivasan. Why? Because he had just said that objectively the best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan. And by definition, everybody else 
is worse. I do think this is a kind of poorly chosen language, uh, as is not uncommon in tweets which are sent out. Uh, uh, they're deliberately sent out to be composed quickly. They're sent out without editing or proofreading, generally speaking. Um, uh, so, so he at the time uh, had been it was been announced that he would become a lecturer at Georgetown Law School and the head of the. the Center on the Constitution that uh, uh, that noted uh, um, a libertarian uh, law professor, Randy Barnett. Runs. Randy, by the way, is a co-blogger of mine. I know him very well. I know Ilya. I know Ilya well too. Uh, not as well. We've, we've certainly crossed paths in, in many contexts. Um, so, in any event, so there were demands that uh, his offer uh, be rescinded. Essentially, that he be fired even before he gets on the job. So uh, the the dean condemned the uh, the, the tweets, and again, I think uh, uh, I think uh, in part because of a, of a deliberately uh, 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 the deliberate misreading of what it seemed to me quite clear that Shapiro meant. Although, of course, different people may read ambiguous language differently. That's one of the things about a, about language. Um, in in any event, though, the uh, the dean announced that there be a uh, that there be an investigation of this, and it went on for. Uh, for uh, at least uh, uh, for, uh, at least for a few months, uh, I don't know the exact number of months. Uh, although I should be able to to, to figure out <laughs> for about four months, it it, it went on, uh, and uh, then eventually they said, "Oh, he is. Uh, we exonerate him from charges of violating the harassment policy, the Georgetown harassment policy." Why? Because he wasn't a faculty member at the time. So the policy applies to faculty members, but he wasn't yet a faculty member. And uh, Shapiro, uh, uh, on a bit of reflection, a couple of days of reflection, decides he can't work at Georgetown under those circumstances and publishes an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, essentially publicly publicly uh, um, uh, uh, withdrawing his acceptance of the offer that they had been considering withdrawing, but didn't. Um, and I think uh, I, I think his argument as to why uh, why uh, the this whole outcome would essentially uh, have meant that he would be uh, entirely lacking in academic freedom, and in fact other people at Georgetown are lacking in economic freedom, uh, is uh, uh, is really very powerful. Uh, the uh, the report that the the, the Georgetown administration issued uh, basically makes clear that expressing certain views uh, with regard to race, uh, sex, uh, and by extension, sexual orientation, religion, political affiliation, which is uh, a protected category under the Georgetown policy, expressing certain views is harassment and prohibited at the university. It, it's uh, an overt declaration that uh, that uh, faculty don't have academic freedom to do that. Even when they're expressing those views outside the classroom, I think academic freedom has historically been understood as extending within the classroom, but there are actually some complications with regard to academic freedom in the classroom. It's quite clear that this applies to your scholarship, it applies to your public commentary, it applies to a wide range of views that people, that people might find offensive. Uh, among other things, the, the report specifically said that that had he said something like this as a faculty member, that might very well have been harassment and punishable. Uh, and uh, um, it, uh, it was applying this, uh, this policy uh, that, uh, this harassment policy that bans, as I mentioned, uh, uh, quote, harassment, close quote, which in this case means tweets that offend people based on not just race and sex, but age, disability, family responsibilities, gender identity, marital status, national origin, uh, political affiliation, religion, sexual orientation, source of income, and veteran status. Uh, this, this long laundry list of, uh, uh, of, of, of categories. Uh, so, so for example, if somebody, uh, if somebody were to post something uh, sharply condemning Republicans, as in fact there had been Georgetown law professors doing, that would be, if the policy were applied even-handedly, that would be forbidden. Or imagine, imagine uh, this hypothetical tweet. The Republicans could have nominated a serious candidate for some position. 
But instead, they nominated an evangelical Christian who adheres to a bigoted and irrational belief system. That is, in fact, the view of many. It is a view that is clearly constitutionally protected. I think it's a view that's clearly protected by academic freedom. As it happens, that's not a view that, that that I generally adhere to. I'm not at all an evangelical Christian, and I and I don't don't agree with their religious beliefs. But you know, the fact is, I think a lot of a lot human experience tells us that a lot of people uh, uh, who are very very smart believe all sorts of religious things that are outsiders think are kind of odd. That's not, in my view, a particularly reasonable basis for uh, for condemning someone, but it's obviously something that people have often brought up with regard to evangelical Christians or with regard to extremist Muslims or with regard to devout Catholics or uh, or with regard to my own group, atheists, uh, right? Uh, right? Um, but uh, under this policy, this, uh, uh, this would be even more clearly punishable because here, this actually is unambiguously a condemnation of a particular religious group. It isn't just saying this candidate is a lesser evangelical Christian candidate because I'm telling you who the best candidate would be and everyone else is lesser. This is actually would be deliberately uh, a, um, uh, a, a, a condemnation of a particular group that's protected under the harassment policy. Uh, or uh, um, uh, to, to draw on another incident that actually happened at Georgetown, there were some uh, some adjunct professors uh, uh, who basically, I think one was fired and the other one was pressured, right. uh, pressured uh, to quit uh, because they were captured in an after-class Zoom remarking that in fact, the, uh, their black students disproportionately end up near the bottom of the class. Well, it turns out that there had been serious scholarship that reveals uh, that, uh, that uh, this indeed often happens, or at least happened in the 1990s, it's based in the 1990s data, uh, but there's a little reason to think that that's changed. And the assumption is it's probably because many of these schools have aggressive race-based affirmative action programs. They let in uh, students, uh, uh, in particular black students, and some measure Hispanic, but primarily uh, is, the effect is particularly strong for black students. They let them in uh, when their predictors, their GPA and their LSAT are a good deal lower than the average for the class. The predictors are predictors because they do a good job of predicting. So unsurprisingly, just as the numbers predict, uh, black students end up near the bottom of the class. So an example I gave in a blog post I wrote yeah. about this controversy is imagine a professor tweets the following with the except, or even writes this in a law review article, with the exception of traditionally black law schools, the median black uh, law school GPA has been at the 6.7th percentile uh, so basically between the sixth and the seventh percentiles of white law students, at least based on 1990s data, and only seven and a half percent of blacks have grades that are higher than the white median. Why is that and what can we do about it? Uh, under the uh, report's interpretation of the harassment policy, that would be equally prohibited, assuming it leads to enough of an outcry. Uh, 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 on the grounds that it conveys the message that black students are lesser. Now, I actually think it doesn't. It doesn't say that blacks are inherently worse than whites. All it says is that this is the observed phenomenon. The reason is probably because of these, uh, of the pretty aggressive affirmative action problems, uh, or programs, but we have to talk about it and figure out what's going on because there are real consequences to that. Uh, but the report suggests that that is, uh, um, uh, that that is actually punishable. And let me just close with a quote from a professor whom I corresponded with, not about yeah. the Shapiro incident, but the earlier firing incident. Um, and uh, uh, the, I, I, I asked uh, uh, about whether, uh, uh, about how one should react to, to the firing of those, uh, of those uh, uh, lectures. And he said it was a, it was a good idea. Uh, I'm going to use the generic he here. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to keep the professor right. um, uh, uh, anonymous. Um, uh, in my experience, it is factually incorrect to say that the bottom of the Georgetown class contains a disproportionate number of black students. Uh, and, you know, it's an interesting factual question. It would surprise me, but it's certainly possible. Surprise me given our assumptions about how aggressive their race-based affirmative action program of pretty much all the private schools at the, at the top of, uh, uh, of the rankings is. Um, it is also, in my view, wrong for faculty to be thinking, not just speaking along those lines, because it will tend to create the very facts that it purports to describe. So the theory is thinking about such things will create unfair or right. racially biased rating. So, well, you know, it's not a, 
this is this is kind of thought crime. I mean, it isn't yet right. being punished, but certainly if you were to reveal that this is your thinking, then consistently with this professor's view, you would be punished for, for harassment, for discussing important facts about life at academic institutions. In any event, I've talked for a long time because yeah. it's a complicated <laughs> issue. Uh, There's a factually complicated right. story. And also, as you can tell, I'm quite impassioned about this. Uh, this is, I think, uh, 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 one of the clearest recent examples of, of the, uh, the real threat to academic freedom here. We're not yeah. talking about just personal insults. We're not, uh, we're not talking uh, about, uh, uh, even as I said, about speech in the classroom. We are talking about people being able to discuss the issues of the day and to criticize the existing administration, criticize uh, uh, leading, uh, leading officials. Uh, that right is basically being stripped away whenever it touches in ways that some people might find offensive on matters of, of race. And again, assuming the policy is even handedly applied, uh, uh, religion, sex, sexual orientation, political affiliation, and the like. Uh, that I think is poison for academic freedom at American universities. Yeah, one of the worries in these speech controversies, of course, is that there is a bad application of the particular individual. And so some individual wind up suffering uh, when they're in the midst of these controversies because the university isn't willing to adhere to its own rules or it applies its rules in a problematic way in, in these particular um, uh, cases. But the other kind of concern that arises is the university just winds up generating very bad rules. Um, they're going to have consequences down the road, have sweeping consequences for lots of other uh, people um, in the university. Um, um, and part of what I thought was particularly striking about your post relative to the Shapiro controversy, um, uh, because the university, when it made its decision, the dean announced what the decision was, referenced this report, but the report itself was not released um, uh, publicly. You got your hands on the report and were able to see uh, the details of what um, uh, this is the University Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action. Um, they were charged with doing the investigation. They were the ones that issued this report. Uh, they are the ones who defined what the harassment policy looks like um, at Georgetown. And as a consequence of how uh, presumably it's going to be applied um, or could be applied um, to other people down the road. So part of what uh, your post sort of highlights is how um, potentially troubling it is about not only what happened to Shapiro, um, and of which people may have disagreements about sort of uh, his, his particular outcome, um, but what the implications are going to be about how the university thinks about its policy uh, more, more broadly. And part of what's striking is the university has a very visible uh, policy on speech and expression that covers not only faculty, but other members of the campus community. Um, it's very sweeping um, about what kinds of protections it claims to offer. Um, but this report, on the other hand, uh, indicates what a powerful office within the university is going to do relative to its own harassment policies. That's much less public, um, but it seems to be um, a very sweeping understanding of harassment that's going to have real um, consequences for how we think about speech at Georgetown. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I've been actually writing about harassment law uh, in various of its guises for 30 years now. I'm, I'm actually thinking about writing an article that's all about just the word harassment and how many right. different things it means. I, I hear people using that word often, like it's a word like, yeah. like tall that has some meaning, maybe some ambiguity, how tall do you need to be to be tall, but right. some, some pretty clear meaning. It doesn't really. So for example, if you traditional instance of harassment, one of them was telephone harassment law, which are all about calling someone, speaking to this person in a way that you know is going to be offensive or that even they told you to stop. Another example of harassment is that, uh, that uh, uh, when you're involved in litigation, you're not supposed to, uh, to file motions or discovery requests for purposes of harassment. It really means, and this is kind of the lay sense of it, kind of like bothering people unnecessarily. But there again, the focus is actually on not offending people. The focus is on actually imposing huge financial costs. Like if you file some right. motion, they have to have a lawyer respond to it at, at time costs and the like. There are hunter harassment statutes in some places which are aimed at uh, uh, preventing people from kind of accompanying hunters, anti-hunting activists, uh. and interfering with their hunting. Again, very different kind of thing. Right. Uh, then there's so-called quid pro quo harassment, which is basically sexual extortion. Not saying offensive things, but saying sleep with me or you're fired. 
that's a, uh, that's a very different kind of harassment. Right. And then there's the so-called hostile environment harassment, uh, which is uh, tends to be defined as speech that is severe or pervasive enough uh, to create a hostile, abusive, or offensive environment, work environment, educational environment, some places, public accommodation environment, housing environment, based on whatever the anti-discrimination categories are, race, religion, sex, sexual orientation, in some places, citizenship status, political affiliation, et cetera, for the person who's complaining and for a reasonable person. Um, and uh, uh, part of the problem is people say harassment, who can be in favor of harassment? And indeed, historically it emerged in a context where it's personal face-to-face -face insults. Right. Uh, sometimes uh, in some sexual harassment situations, it's not insults, it's unwanted requests for dates, which right. could be very well motivated. They're not hate speech, they're love speech, but they're, <laughs> but right. when the recipient doesn't want your love, uh, uh, maybe you should, maybe you should stop talking to that person. Right. But it has increasingly begun to include uh, speech that is said in public to the public that offends some people based on certain criteria. Uh, and the theory is that it has to be, it has to reasonably offend them. But of course, right. all these terms are quite vague, very much in the eyes of the beholder. What's reasonable, what's severe, what's pervasive, what's hostile, abusive, or offensive. Um, so the consequence is that, uh, that you can have policies like the Georgetown Speech and Expression Policy, which seems quite broad, has a, seems like a very narrow exception for harassment, but that exception could end up being read extraordinarily broadly to cover clearly constitutionally protected speech, which is what we see here and what we've seen in some other incidents as well. And the report, I assume, did not really grapple with the free expression policy. So it just ignores the free expression policy in order to lay out the harassment claim, or did it somehow try to reconcile uh, the two? Well, uh, so to, to be fair to the report on, in this respect, uh, the harassment policy, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, not the harassment policy, the uh, speech and expression policy uh, expressly has an exception or has some exception. Right. University prohibits expression that violates the law, falsely defames a specific individual. That would be a sure fit within the uh, uh, the uh, 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 excuse me the libel exception. Constitutes a genuine threat. Yes, there's an exception for threats of violence and other. Mm -hmm. Violates the university's harassment policy or unjustifiably invades substantial privacy or confidentiality interests. So it's a it's. That's, that is a sentence in a long general policy. Right. It's kind of buried inside the general policy. The general policy seems to be all about free speech. It's free speech, this, this exception. Right. But turns out this exception now covers a wide range of viewpoints, so long as essentially people who uh, complain about those viewpoints, do so loudly enough, and uh, uh, the university administration concludes that they're reasonable so doing. It's not even completely clear how much of a showing of reasonableness is required, but still, you know, even if it's required, it, again, that's very much in the eyes of the beholder of the uni university administrators. Uh, so, so the consequence is that this policy, which looked, speech and expression policy, which looked really protective, turns out is is far less protective if this, this interpretation of harassment, uh, uh, which again, essentially includes viewpoints that people find offensive based on their membership in various groups, uh, if, if that definition stays. And part of what seems striking about the report is, as you noted, uh, uh, traditional harassment policies uh, have relate to hostile work environments, at least, um, have developed this context of uh, severe and pervasive um, uh, harassment as being crucial to what constitutes uh, uh, the kind of creating that kind of hostile environment. Part of what's striking about this case is it involves a single tweet um, or two tweets uh, together. Um, so a single episode um, of speech that was characterized at least as being uh, potentially um, harassing. And the report said, well, if you'd actually been a employee at the time you issued those tweets, you could have been fired for it. And if you ever do it again, uh, you could be fired for it, which suggests that 
single incidents, isolated incidents are going to be sufficient um, uh, to trigger the harassment policy uh, with the most severe sanction of firing you. You don't need sort of this more extended pattern um, of, of a lot of different activity in order to add up to creating the hostile environment uh, that a lot of traditional harassment policies would uh, require. Oh, so yeah, that, that's right. And uh, that I think just reflects the fact that this severe or pervasive limitation in harassment policies and harassment law generally uh, is, uh, is not that much of a protection for, for speakers uh, for a couple of, of reasons. One is severe or pervasive. Now, for a while, actually, up until, up until basically now, uh, for several years, uh, uh, starting with, I think, the Trump administration, mm -hmm. uh, the, the harassment policies as to student speech, right. you raising severe and pervasive uh, because of a Supreme Court case which talked about severe and pervasive uh, uh, harassment in the Title IX student. Uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, now the Biden administration switch, suggesting switching uh, back to severe or pervasive. Uh, but in fact, in workplace policies, it has been severe or pervasive, but the or suggests it doesn't have to be pervasive so long as it's severe. Uh -huh. What counts as severe? Well, I might say it's severe is like if it's, it's say a rape because sexual harassment policies apply not just to speech, but physical conduct, or it's somebody, somebody physically groping someone, let's say. Uh, but, you know, in principle, you can imagine severe is severely offensive. Right. How do we know? Because there, the petition now ginned up on the internet with thousands of signatures and there have been protests at the school. Well, that shows that it's severe, right? But even if you say, no, it also has to be pervasive, you know, what does that mean? Uh, especially when a hostile environment, uh, uh, we've been told by courts and by administrators, can be the aggregate of a bunch of speech from a bunch of people. So the only way that the that an employer or an educational institution can prevent harassment is to block every individual incident or punish and deter thus every individual incident uh, of what might, when aggregated, add up mm -hmm. to harassment. Because otherwise, otherwise, it's possible that this person's tweet and that person's statement in the lunchroom and that person's uh, article uh, will aggregate to create this. Uh, 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 this environment. Now, in fact, actually, if you look at the litigated cases, for a lot of them, the plaintiff, uh, in fact, most of the ones that I've seen, the plaintiffs find are required to show quite a bit for severe or pervasive. And there are a lot of situations where there are multiple insults, quite severe insults, the court says that's just not enough. On the other hand, there are some where courts say even a few incidents are enough, in part because that's what happens when you have way, vague language like severe right. or pervasive. The only way it seems to me to avoid that is by saying, look, harassment might be, say, face-to-face -face insults. It may be unwanted communication, but it can't include political ideological statements said to the public about the issues of the day. Uh, and especially it can't do that at a university uh, where the job of, of the faculty is to discuss issues in a way that is... Uh, uh, that is uh, 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 open and often controversial. Uh, and uh, uh, it seems to me that universities have to say that, right. uh, that these things just don't count uh, the, the, for, for purposes of this policy. You're, you are perfectly free to say that and people are offended and they ought to respond. One other factor just to keep in mind, again, I think this was a, a poorly crafted uh, uh, tweet, uh, but if you want to have real freedom, especially freedom to publicly comment, not just in a law review article that goes through maybe a dozen edits in many situations between the professor and the students, and right. such, but in a tweet or in a, even before tweets, in a comment to a reporter who calls you up right. and, uh, and asks you something on the phone and then takes it down and publishes it. Uh, if you're in a position where, uh, when you express views on certain topics, if you err in any way, if you say something that somebody would, interpreting it in a particular way, find offensive, then you're fired uh, or demoted or, or other such things, then the only safe thing to do is just not comment on such matters at all, because who knows uh, what, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, what, what error you might make 
or sometimes even whatever somebody else might make in paraphrasing you or, uh, uh, or reporting on an unreported, say, telephone conversation. But in any event, even if it's your error, if you know that any error you make is going to get you fired if you talk about these subjects or talk, express, uh, uh, talk about these subjects from particular viewpoints, the reasonable thing is not to say anything. And I, and I think that's not an accident. I think that is, right. in fact, the goal uh, of uh, uh, of at least a lot of uh, people backing this policy. I can't read the minds of the, of the Georgetown administrators, but sure. I do think that, in fact, the, the goal for many, uh, uh, and certainly the foreseeable consequence, is to deter the expression of certain views that they find wrong and offensive. Yeah, part of what's striking about the application of this harassment policy as it's being developed in this context is, is uh, the willingness of this office to say, it doesn't matter the context in which you're saying it, it doesn't matter that you're speaking in general about matters of public concern. Um, uh, that's a, that The question is, how do other people feel like they're going to be affected by your views as so expressed? And so as you say, that has consequences then if you're writing op-ed, if you post something on social media, if you uh, have a scholarly paper um, uh, that says something, presumably all those things could potentially um, uh, include uh, uh, statements or comments um, that this office would be willing to say, well, students in your university could take that as harassment um, or creating this kind of hostile environment because you published a law review article making this uh, particular argument. And that seems like a um, particularly strong step for a university uh, to take. Um, and I take it quite unusual. So, so as you say, you've looked at a lot about harassment policies in general and, har and harassment law as it relates to uh, these free speech things. Is the way in which Georgetown's uh, developing its harassment policy in this regard um, unusual, or is this um, uh, um, uh, something that's more familiar about how uh, I guess universities particularly, but maybe workplaces more generally, um, are thinking about their harassment policies and how they ought to be interpreted and applied. You know, it's hard to tell just what the average university mm -hmm. says about, about these things. Part, there are a lot of universities out there. A lot of them don't have any particular incidents either way, either opportunities for them to prove they're really committed to academic freedom or... Uh, actions where they take, which really undermine academic freedom. Uh, in some of those, in fact, they're, one of the reasons they don't have incidents is people are kind of cowed into submission yeah. or deterred from expressing controversial views. But there may also be some universities which are great on this and we don't hear about it because somebody sends in a complaint to the administration and they send back a message saying, no, no. Right. That's the way things are. Like people are entitled to express themselves. You don't like it, you you respond. That, that's that's what university is about. That might happen, right. and and it might not make the news precisely because it happens as a matter of routine rather than as a result of of angst and soul searching and kind right. of public, uh, uh, public dispute. Um, so it's hard to tell for sure. I will say this is far from an isolated incident. Yeah. Uh, that uh, uh, you have uh, you have situations, for example, in what in which. Uh, um, uh, some universities, I want to pop up uh, uh, the exact post of mine on the subject uh, um, uh, just because I want to make sure that I don't sure. label, <laughs> uh, that I don't accuse the wrong, accuse the wrong person um, uh, or the wrong institution. Uh, there was an incident last fall in which Turning Point USA, which is the conservative student groups, created mm -hmm. these little, uh, little uh, uh, stickers which had the caption, China kind of sus. Right. Apparently a, uh, a reference to a video game that was popular for about five minutes. <laughs> At least my kids tell me nobody plays it. Right, right. Uh, called Among Us, I believe, in which people, like the players looking for, they're trying to identify which characters are kind of evil infiltrators. Uh, and uh, 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 they, uh, one of the ways you communicate with other players or the computer would communicate with you is say, I think this person's kind of sus, suspicious. So there's this picture of one of these characters from there, which uh -huh. was uh, red with a gold hammer and sickle on it, which of course is the insignia of the yeah. Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and it said China kind of sus. And the uh, Emerson College suspended the chapter 
on the grounds that they expressed anti-China hate. Emerson's international student affairs team sent out a statement about saying they expressed anti-China hate. So note what they don't do is they don't express anti-Chinese American hate or anti-ethnic Chinese. Mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, they have the symbol not of the Chinese nation historically, they have a symbol of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they don't say Chinese kind of say sus, they say China kind of sus. It is perfectly clear whom they're criticizing. They're criticizing the country and in context, the government. Surely one of the most basic principles of freedom of speech, whether it's constitutional freedom of speech or freedom of speech principles within even private yeah. universities, is you're perfectly free to criticize governments, your own, yeah. other people's. Your, and some governments are much worth, worth criticizing. China is one of them. If you want us to criticize the Russian government, be my guess. I'll join you in it. <laughs> Lots of people criticize the Israeli government by saying Israel. You, they don't say Israel kind of sus, but they fault <laughs> Israel. And imagine a situation where you have it, uh, someone criticizing Israel and then having the Israeli flag. Now, that's a Star right. of David, but maybe if you just have a Star of David, it might you might think, well, that's, uh, uh, that uh, means you're criticizing Jews, although I think you should be free even to criticize Jews. Not, not that I have much respect for people who criticize Jews generally, partly because I'm Jewish, but even more generally than that. Uh, but I think you should be free to do that. But, that. but the analogy here would be that you have not just a Star of David, you have a blue Star of David with blue stripes on a white background. That's the Israeli flag. Right. If you want to criticize Israel using that, of course you have to be free to do that. Then likewise, likewise, you can criticize China. Uh, and yet Emerson College thought nothing of, uh, uh, of just suspending the, the student group expressly for, that, uh, for, for their very speech on the subject. These are just a few examples and there are, there are plenty more. Uh, so uh, I can't say, is this something that's happening at every university or at 73.2% of universities, sure. uh, but it is, it is a trend, it's happening in a lot of places. And uh, if it's not stopped, it's gonna grow. Yeah. Yeah. Part of what's unfortunate is it seems like the, the written policies, uh, as you say, in this case, Georgetown has a free speech policy that carves out a particular exception uh, for harassment. If you look up Georgetown's harassment policy, though, uh, it's not obvious that this would be the interpretation that you would naturally come to uh, from the underlying harassment policy, which is true in lots of universities. And so you get these uh, confidential reports being issued or letters being sent by deans or other administrators um, uh, to faculty or to students uh, relating to uh, these uh, harassment policies, um, uh, which which sometimes make these very bold claims, as we're seeing in the Shapiro case, um, and yet um, uh, if just if you were just sort of thinking, well, should I take a job at this institution, for example, you wouldn't necessarily know what you're walking into, um, uh, and that this might be the kind of uh, regime of speech constraints um, that you're going to wind up being subjected to as a consequence. Uh, right, right. Absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people are, uh, uh, especially who are looking for teaching jobs, you know, it's not like they can just, they can just uh, select among hundreds of options. Uh, they really want a job at some place. It's a difficult job to get. And uh, they they may end up there with and kind of hope for the best, but sometimes, unfortunately, one has to prepare for the worst. Right. One thing, by the way, that this this reminds us of, I think, is uh, uh, what I what I like to think as Justice Brennan said it would be like this. So Justice Brennan, of course, leading uh, leading um, uh, 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 liberal uh, law professor, uh, and he was also liberal on free speech. Uh, in the sense that he was a strong supporter of free speech protections. Uh, and so there are, uh, and I use Justice Brennan as a stand in there. Other justices, of course, uh, had similar views, but uh, uh, they spoke out about these kinds of uh, vague rules that are potentially quite broad. They always hope, in fact, their defenders might say, oh, no, 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 it would never be used this way. And then it's used this way. Right. So one of my favorite quotes here is from a 1963 case, I think. If there's an internal tension between proscription, so prohibition and protection in the statute, we cannot assume that in its subsequent enforcement, ambiguities will be resolved in favor of adequate protection of First Amendment rights. That, you know, you could hope 
you could say, well, if everybody is doing their job right, then we think that, that everything ought to be good. Well, it ought to be, but it might not be. Maybe people won't do their job right, or maybe they'll think they're doing their job right. They have just a vision of their job, which involves suppressing certain kinds of speech. <laughs> right. Um, and the other thing, uh, this is from an opinion joined from, I think, the following year, uh, joined by Justice Brennan, was written by Justice White, uh, about vagueness. It's a vagueness leads people to steer far wider of the unlawful zone. Those sensitive to the perils posed by indefinite language avoid the risk only by restricting their conduct to that which is unquestionably safe. And that's, I think, exactly the kind of thing that we're seeing. You know, some people are say, look, you know, I don't care. I can't live my life always worried. I'm going to say what I want to say. And if I get fired, I'll find another job. So people sometimes say that, but sure. a lot of people don't for perfectly understandable reasons. Right. Us. And the, the other thing, of course, is uh, that uh, very often this ends up uh, being especially applied against people like Ilya Shapiro, people who are uh, lecturers who are not tenured, who don't have the special procedural protections of tenure, who don't have kind of the institutional protections uh, of basically of a large network of colleagues and friends who are in positions of power and like you, or at least have worked with you, or, or at least will say there, but for the grace of God, go I. Right. And every time something like this happens to a lecturer like that, that's a message to other untenured people, whether it's tenure track, professors who haven't yet gotten tenure, or, or grad student instructors, or, uh, or students who are looking for possible jobs within the university, or looking for uh, for uh, for other opportunities that, that they can't just sign up for and be entitled for to. Uh, so so this is a very, very troubling. Uh, right. Um, so I want to switch gears and uh, talk a little bit about an issue that you raised in a uh, different uh, recent post, but I thought was quite interesting, both the um, particular example that you raised and also sort of the general issues that it raises broadly about how universities operate that I think is... Um, sort of getting some more discussion these days. Um, and that is, uh, uh, you had a post highlighting specifically um, a statement that the president of the University of California uh, system had issued after the uh, recent Dobbs decision, uh, the Dobbs decision being uh, the recent uh, Supreme Court case, um, uh, overturning uh, Roe v. Wade and um, announcing that there is not a right to abortion uh, protected uh, in the US constitution. Um, uh, uh, the University of California president um, issued a statement about this. And, and some universities I've seen have issued statements sort of saying, how does this affect our own university and what's going to be the consequences for our own uh, health center or health insurance policies uh, going forward and like. Um, uh, but this uh, statement went um, uh, well beyond that. Um, uh, and in particular, um, had this um, uh, very interesting uh, language, although language that is, I think, um, increasingly familiar in uh, the context of other kinds of statements university presidents issue in response to a wide range of political events um, that occur. Um, the president says, uh, the court's decision is antithetical to the University of California's uh, mission and value. Um, and, and then goes on to um, uh, say what it is that the university uh, wants to uh, affirm instead. Um, so how should, what's your concern about um, presidents issuing uh, statements um, uh, like this? Um, and um, uh, do you think this is a particularly extreme example, is it an unusual example, um, or do you see this as being um, uh, the kind of thing that actually happens uh, fairly often? Well, you know, I, I have seen other statements, both from from universities and departments within universities, mm -hmm. uh, like this before. Uh, I do think it 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 happens in some measure. Again, I can't say exactly how often. I should sure. stress, I don't think this is as bad as firing someone or threatening to fire them for their speech or putting out a speech code saying you can't condemn uh, uh, you can't condemn or disapprove of abortion and the like. Uh, and I can, I, I mean, there's a perfectly plausible argument that uh, that universities as institutions should be able to express their views on various subjects. Certainly private universities have a First Amendment right to express right. their views, but maybe even public universities should be able to do that. Um, 
But I think that there's a real downside to that. Mm -hmm. uh, it was discussed uh, back 50 years ago now in the Calvin Report, uh, written by H Harry Calvin, who's a noted, I think, constitutional scholar. Uh, and uh, it, uh, uh, it, it pointed out that universities uh, are supposed to be about, about uh, developing, furthering, and communicating knowledge. And they work best if they are understood both by people within the institution and by outsiders as being fora for this process and where the forum operator doesn't take a stand on what's the right outcome but just saying you know i'm going to provide a place provide an institution where people can debate these things um, and if you do take a stand on what's the right outcome and say here are our values and this is antithetical to those values then two things happen at least two things one is some people in the institution might say, I better think twice before saying something that's antithetical to those values. I mean, let's say somebody does think that the Dobbs decision is correct. I think, I mean, as a matter of first principles constitutionally, I think uh, it's, it is right and Roe is wrong. Uh, I, as a matter of uh, stereo decisis, I think it's an interesting and difficult question. It's not quite my field. So, so I, I'm not really fully at rest on the subject, but, uh, but at the very least, uh, I think it's quite plausible. And lots of people think it's absolutely right. But now they've been told that the decision is antithetical to the university's mission and values, which suggests that maybe they're antithetical to the university's mission and values. So again, if you are a grad student at a university, if you are, uh, that is to say, somebody whose uh, job and futures are the mercy of the institution, if you are a, uh, an untenured faculty member who's coming up for tenure shortly, are you going to write an article that shows that your values, if it's an ethical article, or uh, or, or even if just a kind of purely technical legal article, you may have sort of values about constitutional interpretation are antithetical to the, your employers, you might be reluctant to. Um, but the other thing is also members of the public already have, I think, something of a perception that, that universities are basically in many ways, left-wing advocacy institutions. And some other time they might have thought it was right-wing advocacy or mainstream kind of core or mainstream advocacy institutions that deliberately cut off the, uh, the, the ends of the spectrum. But today, I think many people have this perception. I think it's probably true of some of them. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, as a result, a scholarship that comes out of those universities or even universities in general, people will say, look, you know, if it, if it matches their mission and values, maybe it's really mission and values driven scholarship rather than scholarship that really comes in to the process saying, you know, we don't know what the answer is and we'll, we'll go where the evidence and the argument leads us. Uh, so I think it undermines the true mission of universities to, uh, to, to, to say this much. Um, and one, one way of illustrating this is there are institutions that clearly have a particular mission and values. And those are really devoutly religious institutions, not just ones with a religious history, but ones that are devoutly religious. And if you hear, for example, a really, let's say, a, a hardcore Catholic institution, I'm not sure how many Catholic institutions would take this view, but some might yeah. say, you know, we are against Roe because it's against our mission and values. Uh, and then there's scholarship coming out of the university or event being put on, which, which purports to expose all the errors in a, or all the problems with abortion. I think maybe people will say, yeah, of course they'd say that. They're ideologues, they're religious ideologues. They're just after about pushing their own particular view. You know, they have a constitutional right to do that. I'm not gonna view them as especially credible. I'm not gonna view them uh, as kind of thoughtful analysts because at least on this subject, They've, they've, they've announced, again, by hypothesis, mm -hmm. of all such universities, but assume that it does announce this, they've announced that this is the result they're gonna reach and surprise, surprise, they've reached this result. Like, oh, what's it to me? Uh, so I think the same thing, it, we're in danger of happening. Maybe it's already happened. Maybe it's irreversible. I don't know. Right. Uh, maybe it's it. Maybe uh, university president statements don't contribute much to uh, to this. Uh, 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 but other things, like for example, uh, the 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 kind of ideological monoculture among the faculty in many departments uh, does more. But in any event, uh, the danger is that people will say, "Look, you know, I, I can't trust what comes out of universities because we know that they just want to promote particular set of values, and if they're not my set of values, then." then why should I listen to them? It sounds like they're, they're kind of the adversary, my ideological adversary, rather than an honest broker. 
And one of the things that's, I think, particularly important to notice here is um, that the president isn't just saying that uh, that the part of the university's mission and values is that women should be able to get abortions. In fact, actually, university that runs in hospitals does have to take a stand on which procedures to provide and may in fact say, look, you know, we think we provide this procedure because we think it's really important to women's lives to be able to get abortions. And it is in fact part of our mission to provide abortions. But of course, the Dobbs decision didn't outlaw abortions. It just said it resolved a particular question of allocation of legal authority. It said, Rose said that questions of abortion should be resolved by the majority of the US Supreme Court. We say the questions of abortion should be resolved by the political process in each state. I oversimplify here, but basically that. It's an interesting and important question of allocation of uh, of, of constitutional authority. That is not an, an issue on which the university has to have a view the way it does have to have a view about what, what right. uh, it provides in, uh, uh, in its hosp uh, hospitals. That is, not, that is not a scientific question the way that, that maybe, you know, maybe, me I mean, medicine does have particular stands on certain views like, you know, uh, this, these procedures are likely to be effect safe and effective and these ones are monk. Um, it, is a, it is a question, it's a contested and difficult question of political theory. Uh, I'm quite sure that the, that the president uh, uh, of the university is not an expert on that particular question. Uh, that, that's, that's just not his field. Uh, he was, I think, a, 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 a university presidents usually are, are academics, but I think he was in medical school. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, and so this is, this is not something that a university, it seems to be, ought to be deciding. Uh, or as this is our, our value is to have these decisions be made at this level rather than that. Um, uh, of course, as you note, part of the concern is that it um, uh, shades how people think about all the scholarship that might be produced by individuals within a university as a consequence of sort of giving the university a particular image uh, in the public mind that um, uh, undermines the sense that the university is a relatively uh, neutral uh, institution with a kind of expertise that can be trusted by all sides. Um, in our current environment, in particular, I think there's got to be concerns at this point about um, for both public and private universities um, as to um, how much um, outsiders are willing to support the institution itself. And so it may be that the, in California, the University of California president um, uh, issuing a statement like this um, is going to go over great, um, right. uh, so, so they'll be politically rewarded. And you can imagine if the University of Florida president um, issued a statement like this, it might not go so well uh, right. relative to how politicians are, are likely um, uh, to respond. So uh, perhaps one implication of that is then, well, if you're in California, um, right. you ought to be issuing statements like this exactly in order to suck up uh, to the local political leaders and lean into the local political environment. Um, whereas maybe in Florida, you ought to be doing the opposite and issuing um, other statements instead, as opposed to, uh, look, maybe we just shouldn't be issuing statements um, at all. Uh, right, right, it's perfectly understandable. Uh... Uh, and you might you might think of this as let's say the uh, consumer business model of the university, which is we're a business. We're out there to provide certain goods that the consumers like. In the process, of course, we want people to like us. We might like we might uh, do that by expressing particular views, branding ourselves in particular ways, and you know. We're savvy business people. We we know what our audience wants, and if our audience wants more patriotism, we'll give them more patriotism. If our audience wants more condemnation of the power structure, we're going to give them more condemnation of the power structure. If our audience uh, 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 wants just uh, if our audience wants us to keep quiet, then we'll keep quiet, right. and we'll tell our employees to keep quiet. Perfectly understandable. That's the way many businesses. Many businesses operate, and you know there are pluses and minuses to that, but it, it's a reality. But that that has certain implications to it. One of which, well, I mean, one of which would be really an end to academic freedom because 
just like many uh, businesses, at the very least, very strongly discourage employees from saying things on controversial topics. Uh, sometimes they may actually pro prohibit it. Some, some states actually bar employers from dictating their employees, especially off the job political activity. Uh, but other states allow that. In any event, they say at the very least, as part of your job, you're not going to say anything controversial. Uh, so that's kind of the end of academic freedom, at least on right. subjects that that are at all controversial but the other thing is you know i get a nice salary from the people of the state of california and if i were at a private university it would be from donors and past donors and others to do certain things one of them is teach students how to be better lawyers but that's actually a very small fraction of my day i teach my teaching load is 10 hours a week which basically means 10 50 minute hours 26 weeks out of the year. So, so we're talking about, you know. There's uh, preparation and grading. Let's not downplay too much. This is deliberately, right. considerably less than, than half of my time. Right. The remaining time, I'm being paid to produce scholarship on whatever subjects I think are interesting. I like to think that I'm adding some value, but this is a classic public good. Right. Even if it's good, some people think it's a public bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but even if it's good, and even if it's on a practically important topic, as law is, it's something, you know, the citizens of the state of California, or taxpayers of California, aren't getting direct benefit from what I'm doing any differently than, than uh, in other states, because I don't write specifically about California law, right. I write about national law more generally. Sure. Um, uh, so so the, there's been a judgment that the production of knowledge and the dissemination of knowledge, even in situations which from an economic perspective of the funder at a normal business would be seen as inefficient, would be seen as throwing away money uh, um, uh, because it isn't directly monetized by the business, it supposedly benefits society at large, that that's something we wanna subsidize. And one question that I think taxpayers and others would say is, okay, if we think this really is the production of knowledge that's really open to all sorts of all sorts of perspectives, maybe including my own, and if they disagree with mine, at least it's because everybody can express these views, but the experts, rightly or wrongly, end up end up reaching a different result in the majority of the scholarship. Then I think people might say, okay, this is worth subsidizing. Uh, but the more it looks like, yeah, this is for promotion of a particular set of values and a particular mission, which happens to be the mission of the moderate to far left. Well, I could see people on the moderate to far left wanting to continue funding that. It's not clear to me why people on the right or even in the center would really want to continue funding that. Um, and if the response is, well, how, uh, how narrow-minded of you conservatives to stop, to stop funding this or, uh, because uh, you're now trying to censor what people are saying, I think one possible response is, look, that might... We wouldn't be trying to censor it, or at least fewer of us would be trying to censor it if we really thought this was going to be an open debate, because that's what is valuable for us to support. But if it does look like a means of promoting a certain set of values, if we don't happen to share those values, why exactly is there anything wrong with us deciding we want to spend our money uh, on promoting our values rather than your values? Right, right. Would it help at all from your perspective if the university president had been clear about, um, uh, I say clear because it's it's not obvious that in fact this was the intention at all, so it's not maybe not be a clarification, it may just be a change, uh, but if the university president sort of emphasized, this is just my personal opinion, so I'm issuing a oh. personal statement reflecting my own personal views, this is not in any way a reflection of the institution, etc. Um, if, if there are more qualifications like that, um, would that alter how we ought to think about these kind of presidential well, statements? Well, it would certainly make for at least a stronger claim that he's entitled to do that. I don't think yeah. that becoming a president of a university should mean that you have no more right to uh, to speak out. Among other things, he's also, he is an academic as well. He has his right. own freedom, right? So to be sure, as a practical matter, I'm sure university presidents carefully watch what they say. Uh, but, uh, but I think that would be much more, uh, uh, it would be much harder to criticize that. Uh, however, who really wants to know what this particular person believes? You know, he's an administrator of a, of a university system. Most people 
would say, you know, if you were if you were kind of a nationally prominent scholar, maybe we'd listen to you. Uh, but if your main claim to fame at this point in your career is you happen to be an administrator, we're not sure that's that interesting. Right. Uh, it is precisely the fact that he's speaking on behalf of the university, sending out the message, I believe, one way or the other. I think it was emailed out. Maybe, maybe he, I'm not sure if his was or just the chancellor's message was, right. but I got it in my mailbox. I think it was emailed out in some ways, I believe, although I may be mistaken, to, right. to a wide range, maybe all faculty, at least a wide range of faculty, maybe a lot of students, certainly communicated as the official message. Uh, that's what makes, makes people pay attention to it. Now, I do think, though, it's important to acknowledge that universities do have to take stands on certain things. Right. Uh, because they have to decide what to teach. They have to decide, let's say, what subjects to teach. You know, they teach chemistry, not alchemy. Astronomy, not astrology, right? That, that is part right. of the mission. They've got to make that decision. Sure. Um, they, have to, they have to decide uh, uh, what uh, medical procedures to perform. So if, for example, he sent out a message saying, I just want to assure everybody that the University of California is going to continue performing abortions and teaching people about abortions, uh, that's something that certainly California law authorizes, but also we have to decide as an institution whether that's a valuable procedure for us to be performing. And yes, our, our medical faculty and the administrators whose job is to do that have decided that and we stand by that decision. We think it's really important to be able to do that. Uh, uh, of course, we're a place where, where scholars and doctors could could say, you know, we're against this, but right. we have to make a decision as to what's covered and what's not, and we certainly do cover this. I mean, I think that would be perfectly legitimate and important for the university to reassure people, say, oh my God, there's this new decision. Can I even get an abortion through my UC, UC healthcare plan or do you see hospital? Yes, absolutely you can. That's, that's something on which the university has to take a stand. And I think it communicate that stand, especially if it, if it conveys at the same time, we're, we're a place with a lot of people with a lot of different beliefs, but at some point in deciding what procedures to perform, we have to choose one or the other, and we've chosen this. The university does not have to take a stand on how do you interpret the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Right. And certainly there's presumably some public policies the university should or needs to take a stand on as well. So affirmative action, for example, which has direct implications for university policies. Lots of universities have been very vocal about what their own views are about affirmative action as, as a matter of public policy, as well as sometimes law. Um, uh, a lot of universities were very uh, engaged in the arguments relating to uh, immigration policy during the Obama and Trump administrations relating to dreamers and the like. And, and um, I'm sure the California system was among those um, that was weighing in about uh, what they thought the right immigration policy would be on the claim that this would have consequences for their right. own students, on for their own right. faculty, for their own hiring decisions, et cetera. And, and, and so, certain things definitely do. Yeah. Like uh, the policy about uh, uh, about uh, what to do with people who illegally immigrated is, is you know, it's it is has some effect in universities, but but not vast effect. The policy is about legal immigration and in yeah. particular student visas and such tremendous effects both on the the uh, uh, quality of the service that the university provides because there's actually some value in having people from all over uh, uh, and on the revenue stream of the university because a lot of these foreign students pay full freight. Uh, uh, so so yes, it does have to take a stand on certain things. And and I, I totally agree. I, you know, I disagree with the with probably ninety five percent of my uh, 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 my uh, colleagues with regard to race based affirmative action. I was actually uh, one of the drafters of the Prop two hundred nine junior still, uh, 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 position, but still I was involved in the drafting of it back in nineteen ninety six. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think that race-based affirmative action is wrong, but of course the university has to make decisions whether it thinks it's right and it can convey that decision. Again, I would hope it would convey that decision uh, uh, under the, uh, um, uh, oh, with, an with an acknowledgement that of course, different people at the faculty are entitled to take different views uh, on the subject, but, but it certainly could convey that decision. Uh, but uh, you, I think we have to recognize that at some point, uh, uh, they, uh, the direct university's interest in the question uh, it becomes a lot weaker. And if that's so, then I think it's 
better on balance for the university to say, you know, to just to make it, to assure people we're an honest broker on certain subjects, we're not gonna take a stand on those subjects. Our faculty might take a stand and our faculty may, may take opposite stands and that's itself actually a valuable thing. But we're not gonna say that our values uh, essentially tell us that this is, this should be a constitutional right and such when, when that's actually not a decision that the university needs to make. All right. Um, so thanks very much. I really appreciate um, uh, the conversation um, on this today. I thought these two blog posts uh, raised particularly uh, interesting issues that were worth um, trying to unpack a little bit um, in the podcast. In the show notes uh, to this episode, uh, you'll be able to find links to the two blog posts I've, I've mentioned at the Volk Conspiracy. Um, uh, the one uh, talking about the Georgetown policy includes a, a long list of very interesting hypotheticals about what the implications of the policy might be uh, for a variety of speech acts that we could imagine occurring in the future, um, which I think are quite uh, useful to help think through um, uh, these issues. Um, and we'll also provide a link to the Calvin Report at the University of Chicago, which talks about this question of institutional uh, neutrality um, on political questions uh, uh, generally. Um, please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast through your favorite platform so that you don't miss an episode, um, and rate us on iTunes, which will help others find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.